Section 19 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 6, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Elizabeth, Chapter 5, Part 5. In February 1567, the horrible and mysterious murder of the unfortunate husband of Mary, Queen of Scots, took place under circumstances artfully contrived by the perpetrators of this atrocious deed to fling a strong suspicion of the crime on their hapless sovereign elizabeth's first impulse on learning this tragic event was to send lady howard and lady cecil to her ill-treated cousin lady lennox whom she had detained now two years a close prisoner in the tower to break to her the agonizing news of the calamity that had befallen her in the evening she sent her own physician dr hewick to visit her and the dean of westminster to offer her consolation it is possible that if this experienced lady had been allowed to join her husband and son in scotland on the marriage of mary with the latter her counsels and mediation might have operated to prevent most of those unhappy differences between the royal pair which were fomented by their mutual foes now that the worst that could befall had happened Elizabeth restored Lady Lennox and her youngest son, Charles, to liberty, and treated her with tenderness and consideration, both the Countess and her husband having been led to believe that the Scottish Queen was deeply implicated in the murder of their son, appealed to Elizabeth for vengeance, and especially to bring Bothwell to an open trial for his share in the transaction. Elizabeth wrote, in the energetic spirit of a daughter of the Plantagenets, to her unhappy cousin Mary Stuart, conjuring her to act as became her in this frightful crisis she says for the love of god madam use such sincerity and prudence in this case which touches you so nearly that all the world may have reason to judge you innocent of so enormous a crime a thing which unless you do you will be worthily blotted out from the rank of princesses and rendered not undeservedly the opprobrium of the vulgar rather than which fate should befall you i should wish you an honourable sepulchre instead of a stained life this letter was written at the instance of darnley's father the earl of lennox who was desirous of having bothwell's trial postponed till he could obtain further proofs of his guilt but mary was in the hands of bothwell and his faction elizabeth's letter fell into the possession of maitland whose interest it was to suppress it and there is reason to believe that it never reached her at all maitland attended bothwell on his trial and he was acquitted elizabeth of course received no answer to her letter which might have led so acute a princess to suspect that it had been intercepted or detained especially when she understood that it had passed into hands so suspicious as those as maitland whose falsehood she had good reason to know however it suited her policy to consider mary as a state criminal and she eagerly received the strong tide of circumstantial evidence as confirmation of her guilt on the subject of mary's marriage with bothwell elizabeth expressed herself with great severity not only on account of its appearing an outrage against every proper feeling but because she anticipated that an immediate league between the new consort of the scottish queen and france would be the result there can be little doubt but this would have been the case if mary's marriage with that ruffian had been her own choice or anything but the offspring of dire necessity 
Mary's kindred and the court of France treated him, by the advice of the ambassador, Ducroc, who was the friend and confidant of the hapless queen, with the scorn he merited. They would not acknowledge him in any way, therefore Elizabeth was very soon relieved from her apprehension of a dangerous coalition between Bothwell and France. Relentlessly as Elizabeth had labored to undermine the throne of Mary Stuart, she no sooner beheld it in dust, and the queen a degraded and heartbroken captive, in the hands of the fierce oligarchy, whom her machinations and her gold had spirited up against their sovereign, than her mind misgave her. The blow that had been successfully struck at her hated rival might rebound upon herself, by demonstrating to her own subjects the fact that crowned heads, were amenable to the delegates of the people, not only for misgovernment, but for personal crimes, a principle which no Tudor sovereign could desire to see established in England. Yet she, Elizabeth, the most despotic monarch, save and except her father, that ever swayed the scepter of this realm, had nourished the spirit of revolt against the regal authority in the dominions of her neighbor, and for the sake of personal vengeance on a fairer woman than herself, had committed a political sin against her own privileged and peculiar class, by teaching others to set at naught the divinity that hedges in a king. The recent proceedings in Scotland, the movements of the Huguenots in France and in Flanders, were signs of the tendency of the times towards a general emancipation from the restraints which governments and state creeds had imposed on the minds of men. The spiritual yoke of Rome had been broken in England and Scotland, and the elements of political revolution were agitating the western nations. Elizabeth had fed the flame for the sake of embarrassing the hostile sovereigns, who were ready to impugn her title to the crown she wore, but she was the most arbitrary of all, in her determination to crush the same spirit in her own realm. A party was, however, struggling into existence, whose object was to establish the right of senates to hold the sovereign in check, and Elizabeth already began to feel its influence. Her own parliament had recently opposed her will, and attempted to dictate to her the line of conduct they considered it was her duty to adopt, and if encouraged by the example of the successful revolt of Mary Stuart's subjects, they might ere long treat herself with as little ceremony. In the first revulsion caused by these reflections, Elizabeth dispatched Throckmorton to Scotland, on a mission of comfort to the captive queen, and of stern remonstrance to her former tools and pensioners, Murray and his triumphant faction. While Mary was exposed to every bitter insult and indignity, during her woeful incarceration at Loch Leven, Elizabeth wrote to the queen regent of France, Catherine de Medicis, the following letter, which casts a peculiar light on the apparent inconsistency of her political conduct at this period, with regard to her royal kinswoman. October 16th, 1567. Having learned by your letter, madam, of which Monsieur Pasquier is the bearer, your honorable intention, and that of the king, my brother, on the part of my desolate cousin, the Queen of Scots, I rejoice me very much to see that one prince takes to heart the wrongs done to another, having a hatred to that metamorphosis, where the head is removed to the foot, and the heels hold the highest place. I promise you, madam, that even if my consanguinity did not constrain me to wish her all honor, her example would seem too terrible for neighbors to behold, and for all princes to hear. These evils often resemble the noxious influence of some baleful planet, 
which commencing in one place without the good power might well fall in another not that god be thanked i have any doubts on my part wishing that neither the king my good brother nor any other prince had more cause to chastise their bad subjects than i have to avenge myself on mine which are always as faithful to me as i could desire notwithstanding which i never fail to condole with those princes who have cause to be angry even those troubles that formerly began with the king have vexed me before now monsieur pasquier as i believe thinks i have no french by the passions of laughter into which he throws me by the formal precision with which he speaks and expresses himself beseeching you madam if i can at this time do any pleasure you will let me know that i may acquit myself as a good friend on your part in the meantime i cannot cease to pray the creator to guard the king and yourself from your bad subjects and to have you always in his holy care in haste at hampton court this sixteenth of october fifteen sixty seven your good sister and cousin elizabeth the commiseration effected by elizabeth in this letter for the troubles she had industriously fomented in the dominions both of mary stuart and charles the ninth was doubtless galling in the extreme to the proud catherine de medicis in her answer some months afterwards that princess retorts in the keenness of italian sarcasms her own words upon the english queen elizabeth was at that time amusing herself with the matrimonial negotiations which were actively renewed for her marriage with the accomplished archduke charles youngest son of the emperor ferdinand i and brother to maximilian ii the reigning emperor of germany the religion of the archduke was the only impediment to an alliance which elizabeth is supposed to have considered with more complacency than any other of her numerous offers the earl of sussex her grand chamberlain the well-known opponent of leicester was the ambassador in the treaty and prosecuted his mission with great zeal in the hopes of giving a check to the absorbing favoritism of his adversary the letters of this magnificent noble are worthy of his high character he draws for his mistress's information a very graphic picture of her suitor his highness writes sussex to the queen is of person higher surely a good deal than my lord marquis of baden his hair of head and beard a light auburn his face well proportioned amiable and of a very good complexion without show of redness or over paleness his countenance and speech cheerful very courteous but stately his body very well shaped without deformity or blemish his hands very good and fair his legs clean well proportioned and of sufficient bigness for his stature his foot as good as may be so as upon my duty to your majesty i find not one deformity misshape or anything to be noted worthy of misliking in his whole person but contrariwise i find his whole shape to be good in all respects and such as is rarely found in a prince his highness besides his natural language of dutch or german speaketh very well spanish and italian and as i hear latin his dealings with me are very wise his conversation such as much contents me and as i hear not one returns discontented from his company he is greatly beloved here of all men the chiefest gallants of these parts are his men and follow his court and truly we cannot be so glad to have him come to us as they will be sad here to have him go from them 
he is reported to be valiant and of great courage in defending his countries from the turks and in making them keep his rules and he is universally which i most weigh noted to be of such virtue that he was never spotted or touched with any notable vice or crime which is much in a prince of his age endowed with such qualities he delights much in hunting riding hawking and exercise of feats of arms and hearing of music whereof he hath very good he hath as i hear some understanding in astronomy and cosmography and takes pleasure in clocks that set forth the course of the planets he hath for his portion the countries of styria carniola trieste and istria and the government of what remains in croatan where he may ride without entering any other man's territories three hundred miles since the writing of my other letters continues sussex i took occasion to go to the archduke in order to sound him in all causes and to feel whether what he had uttered to me proceeded from him bona fide or were but words of form at my coming his highness willed me to go into his bedchamber where the doors being shut and no person present we had long talk the effect whereof i will recite to your majesty as near as i can you i said were free to marry where it should please god to put you in the heart to like and you had given no grateful ear to any motion of marriage before this although you had received sundry great offers from others i would therefore be as bold with his highness as i was with your majesty and therefore beseeched him to let me on his honour understand whether he earnestly desired for love of your person and had determined in his heart for this marriage or else to satisfy others that procured him thereto and cared not what became thereof for in the one i would serve your majesty and him truly and in the other i was not a person of that quality to be made a convenient minister his highness answered count i have heard by the emperor of your dealing with him and i have had dealings with you myself wherewith he and i rest very well contented but truly i never rested more contented than i do of this dealing wherein besides your duty to her who trusted you you show what you are yourself for which i honour you as you are worthy pardon me interpolates sussex i beseech your majesty for writing the words he spake of myself for they serve to set forth his natural disposition although continues the archduke i have always had good hope of the queen's honourable dealings in this matter yet i have heard so much of her disposition not to marry as might give me cause to suspect the worst but by your manner of dealing with me i do think myself bound wherewith he put off his cap to honour love and serve her majesty while i live and will firmly credit what you on your majesty's behalf have said therefore if i might have hope that her majesty would bear with me for my conscience on account of his being a catholic i know not that thing in the world i would refuse to do at her commandment and surely i have from the beginning of the matter settled my heart upon her and never thought of other wife if she would think me worthy to be her husband i thanked his highness for his frank dealing wherein i would believe him and deal likewise and now i am satisfied in this i beseech your highness to satisfy also me in another matter and bear with me though i seem somewhat busy for i mean it for the best sussex with more diplomacy than seems consistent with his manly character proceeded to give the archduke a hint that some indecision had been attributed to him on the point of religion 
in plain language that he meant to act according to the fashion of the times and adopt the creed that best suited his interest and aggrandizement if this be true continued sussex trust me sir i beseech you i will not betray you and let me know the secret of your heart whereby you may grow to a shorter end of your desire on my oath i assure you i will never utter your counsel to any person living but to the queen my mistress and i deliver you her promise upon her honour not to utter to any person without your consent and if you will not trust me therein commit it to her majesty by letter and she will not deceive you the answer of the archduke is noble and sincere surely said his highness whoever has said this of me to the queen's majesty or to you or any other hath said more than he knoweth god grant he meant well therein my ancestors have always holden the religion that i hold and i never knew other therefore i never could have purpose to change i trust when her majesty shall consider my case well my determination herein shall not hurt my cause for count continued he to the earl of sussex how could the queen like me in anything if i should prove so light in changing my conscience therefore i will myself crave of her majesty by my letters her grant of my only request and i pray you with all my heart to further it all you may in such like talk his highness spent almost two hours with me which i thought my duty to advertise your majesty hereupon i gathered that reputation rules him much in the case of religion and that if god couple you together in liking you shall find him a true husband a loving companion a wise counsellor and a faithful servant and we shall have as virtuous a prince as ever ruled god grant though you are worthy a great deal better than he if he were to be found that our wickedness be not such as we be unworthy of him or of such as he is from vienna this twenty sixth of october fifteen sixty seven your majesty's most humble and faithful subject and servant t sussex in succeeding conferences the archduke agreed to conform so far as to be present with elizabeth at the service of the church of england and that neither he nor his would speak or do the least thing to the disparagement of the established religion and that if he were allowed the use of a chapel for the rites of his own no englishman should ever be present at mass but elizabeth showed her usual sagacity in the rejection of his hand she knew if she married a catholic however wise and moderate he might be she would instantly lose the confidence of the great mass of her protestant subjects who kept her on the throne and that she should be forced with her husband to join entirely with the catholic party very few of whom could consider her birth as legitimate sussex continued to describe the personal gallantry of the archduke when riding at the ring and other chivalric exercises in the contemplation of which his royal mistress delighted in the afternoon he said the emperor rode in his coach to see the archduke run at the ring who commanded me to run at his side and my lord north mr cobham and mr powell to run on the other side and after our running was done the archduke mounted a courser of naples and surely his highness in the order of his running the managing of his horse and the manner of his seat governed himself exceedingly well and so as in my judgment not to be amended elizabeth notwithstanding knew her duty too well as queen of england 
to introduce more jealousies among her people than those which were already fermenting around her she ultimately refused the accomplished german on account of diversity of religion sussex attributed the ill success of his mission to the paramount influence of leicester saying he knew who was at work in the vineyard at home but if god should ever put it into his dear mistress's heart to divide the weeds from the grain she would reap the better harvest here leicester's party had already whispered that the archduke was devotedly attached to a german woman and had a family of young children for whose sake he would never marry while this negotiation was yet proceeding events occurred in the sister realm of scotland which gave a new and strange colouring to the next twenty years of elizabeth's life and reign the unfortunate queen of scots having effected her escape from lochleven castle her faithful friends rallied round her standard but being intercepted and cut off by the rebel lords in her retreat to dumbarton she suffered a decisive defeat may thirteenth fifteen sixty eight at the battle of langside she took the fatal resolution of throwing herself on the protection of queen elizabeth to whom she wrote a touching letter from the abbey of dundrenan assuring her that her sole dependence was on her friendship to remind you concludes the royal fugitive of the reasons i have to depend on england i send back to you its queen this token of her promised friendship and assistance this was a diamond in the form of a heart which had been sent to her by elizabeth as a pledge of her amity and goodwill contrary to the advice of her friends mary with the rash confidence of a queen of tragedy or romance crossed the firth of solway in a fishing boat with lord harry's and her little train and on the sixteenth of may landed at workington in cumberland the next day she addressed an eloquent letter to elizabeth detailing briefly and rapidly the wrongs to which she had been subjected her present sore distress even for a change of apparel and entreated to be conducted to her presence mary was recognized by the gentlemen of the neighborhood and received an honorable welcome and she was conducted to carlisle with sufficient marks of affection and respect to excite the jealous ill-will of elizabeth who sent her own trusty kinsman sir francis nolis and lord scroop ostensibly to congratulate the royal fugitive in her name on her escape but in effect to constitute her a prisoner the hard uncourteous manner in which after a few deceitful compliments this pair of statesmen behaved is sufficiently proved by the testimony of their own letters yet it is impossible to read those of nolis without being struck with his sagacious foresight of the evil results arising from mary's detention although his comments are personally malicious to the queen of scots and he omitted nothing that was calculated to excite elizabeth's jealousy and suspicion against her still he wisely deprecated her imprisonment in england as alike impolitic and dishonorable elizabeth not contented with the detention of her unfortunate guest endeavored by all the means she could devise to obtain possession of mary's infant son the heir as he subsequently proved of both their realms could she have succeeded in getting this babe into her hands she would then have had every living creature who stood in the line of the regal succession in her power the broken-hearted lady catherine gray was dead but her orphan infants though stigmatized as illegitimate were still regarded by a strong party whom the queen could neither silence nor awe as the representatives of the line to which the crown had been entailed by henry the eighth 
there had been an attempt by Hales, the clerk of the Hanaper, to advocate the claims of these children to the succession. Elizabeth's acute minister, Nicholas Bacon, was implicated in this project, and had been for a time under the cloud of the royal displeasure. The presence of the heir male of the elder line, under the immediate tutelage of Elizabeth, would effectually silence the partisans of the persecuted descendants of the House of Suffolk, besides guarding the sovereign from any attempts on the part of the royal line of Lennox Stuart. Murray would not, however, resign the infant prince, in whose name alone he could exercise the regal power of Scotland, for while he knew that Elizabeth's next step would be to make herself mistress of Scotland, under the pretense of asserting the rights of the lawful heir. Independently of this, her favorite project, Elizabeth, as the umpire chosen to decide the controversy between Mary Stuart and the faction by whom that queen had been dethroned, and branded with the crimes of adultery and murder, had a mighty political advantage in her power, if she could have resolved to fulfill her promises of friendship and protection to her hapless kinswoman. She was exactly in that position which would have enabled her to name her own terms with Mary, as the price of re-establishing her on the throne of Scotland. The predominant faction, for it was no more, since Mary had a strong party in her favor, ready to peril all in her behalf, and others willing to befriend her, yet fearing to expose themselves to the malice of her enemies, unless some visible protection encouraged them dared not have acted in opposition to the fiat of the armed umpire they had chosen whose troops were ready to pour over the border and even then occupied some of the fortresses of the frontiers elizabeth could have negotiated a pardon for her old confederates and pensioners could have replaced mary in a moderate exercise of the regal power of scotland and established herself in the dignity maintained by the monarchs of england in the olden times even that of Bretwalda, or paramount suzerain of the Britannic Empire. She preferred gratifying her personal revenge to the aggrandizement of her realm, and the exaltation of her glory both as sovereign and a woman, and committed an enormous political blunder, as well as a crime, by the useless turpitude of her conduct to Mary Stuart. From that moment, too, that she resolved on the unjustifiable detention of the royal fugitive her own peace of mind was forfeited. She had sown the hydra's teeth in the hitherto peaceful soil of her own realm, and they sprang up to vex her with plots, foreign and domestic, open revolts, and secret confederacies, in which her ancient nobility were deeply involved. The loving welcome that Mary Carlyle and its neighboring magnates, the chivalric aristocracy of the border, had given to the beautiful and fascinating heiress presumptive to the crown, early filled Elizabeth and her council, with jealous uneasiness, and Mary was removed, sorely against her will, to Bolton Castle in Yorkshire, the seat of Lord Scroop, to whose charge she was consigned. In August, contrary to her first decision, and to the advice of her faithful counsellors, Mary agreed to submit her cause to the decision of the English commissioners appointed by Elizabeth. The conferences were opened at York, where Murray and his confederates urged not only their old accusations against their sovereign, but produced the far-famed silver-gilt casket and its contents, the sonnets and letters which they asserted Mary had written to Bothwell. They refused to allow Mary herself to see these, neither was she permitted to appear, according to her own earnest desire, to confront and cross-question her accusers. 
So impressed, however, was the president of the commission, the premier peer of England, Elizabeth's maternal kinsman, the Duke of Norfolk, of the innocence of the Scottish queen, that he was willing to trust his own honor in her hands, and actually pronounced the fullest sentence of acquittal that mortal judge could do, by seeking her for his wife. It is true that he had seen her at Carlisle, and was captivated by her beauty, but if any portion of the horrible and vulgar letters, purporting to have been written by Mary to Bothwell, could have been proved, a revulsion of feeling in the breast of Norfolk, must have been the result which would have taught him to regard her with sentiments of horror instead of the love and reverence for her virtues which attended him to the block and was transmitted by him as a legacy to his equally unfortunate son philip earl of arundel elizabeth herself after she had considered the evidences pronounced that she had seen nothing proved on either side and broke up the conferences as early as november fifteen sixty eight Norfolk disclosed to Maitland his desire of a union with the captive queen, and suffered himself to be deluded by his pretended friendship, and the wiles of the treacherous Leicester and Murray, who induced him to believe that they were desirous of bringing this matter to pass. The project was revealed by them to Elizabeth, who caused Mary to be immediately transferred from the keeping of Lord Scroop, whose lady was the sister of the enamoured duke, to the gloomy and noxious fortress of Tutbury, where she was subjected to many harsh restraints, her train diminished, and herself placed under the ungentle jailership of the Earl and Countess of Shrewsbury. The letters of the Earl of Shrewsbury unroll a long diary of concealed history. The injustice with which Elizabeth treated her hapless heiress seems to have produced most baleful fruits to whoever partook of it. The Earl of Shrewsbury himself was greatly to be pitied, he was more honorable and humane than many of his contemporaries, and most lamentably, he entreated his royal mistress to relieve him of his charge. Elizabeth, who canton Mary and her attendants on him, because she was jealous of the report of his enormous wealth, at first either refused to pay him anything for the board of the royal captive and her followers, or paid him very meanly and the magnificent earl was forced to raise piteous plaints of poverty, and of being utterly devoured, whenever he done for remittances to Leicester or Cecil. The earl was, in truth, converted into a wretched jailer, who inflicted and received a life of domestic misery. His intriguing, proud and cruel wife, whose temper could not be restrained by any power, either on earth or in heaven, soon became jealous of the lovely and fascinating prisoner, and led her husband, a noble of exemplary gravity, and a grandsire, a terrible life. The reports that originated from his own fireside, caused Elizabeth to be exceedingly suspicious, in her turn, of the stout earl, on whom she set spies, who reported his minutest actions. Writers have been found to justify the injurious treatment to which Mary Stuart was subjected in England, on the plea that she, as a foreign sovereign, might, by the laws of nations, be constituted a prisoner, because she entered Elizabeth's realm without having obtained permission to do so. Cecil, her great enemy, far from using so paltry an excuse, has written in his barristerial argument on her side, she is to be helped because she came willingly into the realm, upon trust of the Queen's Majesty. Secondly, he says, and this convicts Elizabeth of perfidy, which requires no comment. She trusted in the Queen's Majesty's help, 
because she had, in her trouble, received many messages to that effect. If all the pens in the world were employed in the defense of Elizabeth's conduct, they could not obliterate the stain which that incontrovertible record of her treachery has left upon her memory. In justice to Elizabeth, however, be it recorded, that when the Countess of Lennox, with passionate tears, presented a petition to her, entreating in the name of herself and husband, that the Queen of Scots might be proceeded against for the death of their son, Lord Darnley, the natural subject of the English sovereign. Her Majesty, after graciously soothing the afflicted mother, told her that she could not, without evident proof, accuse a princess and her near kinswoman of so great a crime, significantly reminding her that the times were evil and hatred blind, imputing often offences to persons of exalted rank of which they were innocent. The Countess of Lennox was ultimately convinced that her daughter-in-law, the Queen of Scots, was wholly guiltless of Darnley's death, and continued till she died in friendly correspondence with her. End of section 19